Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here at NeurIPS continuing my coverage and conversations from the 33rd NeurIPS conference. And I am seated with Pablo Samuel Castro, who is a staff research software developer at Google. Pablo, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This is a real pleasure to be here. I'm a big awesome. fan. Awesome. Thanks so much. I am uh, really excited to uh, jump into this conversation. You are someone that I follow on Twitter and like we've had these kind of back in occasional back and yeah. forths uh, over time and it's great to, to finally meet you in person. Uh, you've got some pretty varied interests. Uh, you spend a lot of time, your research focus uh, on reinforcement learning. You also tweet a lot about music and the mm-hmm. arts. Looking at your background, you've done applied ML stuff at Google mm-hmm. on, you know, ads, mm-hmm. and Chrome, and other things. You know, tell us the story. Like, how do all these threads come together? <laughs> um, so, well, originally I'm from Ecuador, uh, and I moved to Canada after high school to to come study at McGill. Um, so I eventually I did my undergrad, and then I eventually actually did my master's and PhD at McGill um, uh, with Doina Prekup and Prakash Panagaran, and. So part of the reason why I stayed in, in Montreal and, and McGill was for personal reasons. I had, I was dating someone who's now my wife. Uh, and I also, personal yes. <laughs> and I also had um, a, a band. So I've always been heavily involved with music. I grew up with music, uh, learning music, playing music. So that was very important to me and I didn't want to leave that. So I decided to make that choice. I know it's not the typical thing that is suggested to, to do all your degrees in the same university, uh-huh. but um, for me, it was more important to, to keep playing music. Um, so I graduated, I finished my PhD around 2011, and then I moved to Paris for a postdoc. And this was at a time where AI isn't what we see here with 12,000 people in this conference. I mean, NeurIPS sure. didn't have, back then it was called NIPS, maybe 4,000 people. Uh, so I wanted to stay in academia, and I was working at, the, at this intersection that was very theoretical sort of between um, markup decision processes and formal verification. So I was finding it really hard to find a job because I wasn't formal verification enough for the formal verification community and I, was, I wasn't reinforcement learning enough for the reinforcement learning community. Okay. And so after my postdoc, I, I just feared, I already had two young kids and I feared that I would just be going postdoc to postdoc for too long. Uh-huh. So I luckily got a job off from, from Google doing applied machine learning and ads. And I actually said goodbye to academia at that point. I stopped okay. reading papers and fast. I, then I did a little quick stint in Chrome doing uh, building machine learning infrastructure. Uh, so yeah. backend infrastructure. Um, and Brain opened up in Montreal, and uh, Mark Belmar, who I had done my master's with, he was he kept in research. Um, he was in DeepMind for a while, and he was was one of the first people to join Brain in Montreal. And he put in a good word for me, and uh, so then they they offered me to to join them, and I jumped at that at that uh, possibility. And I hadn't been following the research at all, so it was a huge shock to come back. I mean, when I was doing my research, we were all working on grid worlds and very simple environments because a lot of it was theoretical. We didn't really use deep networks at all for, for reinforcement learning. Um, so it was a lot of catch-up, <laughs> trying to, to familiarize myself with the literature and how the whole landscape had changed. Um, so throughout all this time, I always kept with music. I had a, a few different bands. Always, I've always been performing live and, and writing music and um, the other thing is when I started my PhD, I was actually considering doing a PhD with Douglas Eck as well as with uh, Doina Prekup mm-hmm. in something with machine learning and, and music. 
But at the time, I, the what was available for music generation didn't really excite me very much because yeah. um, it was still in the early days. And I feared that it would um, taint my love of music and I just wanted to keep my music uh, side separate. But when I rejoined um, the research world and I saw what the Magenta team was doing, I was kind of blown away by, by the quality of, of things. So then um, I decided to also start going along that pathway. And uh, pretty almost, I think the day after I joined Brain, um, this artist from Canada, uh, he's called David Usher. He's pretty well known in Canada. Okay. He approached us wanting to... The other Usher. <laughs> he approached us. Uh, he was actually first. He had a band in the 90s uh, called Moist and was really popular. And he approached us. He wanted to do an album using like AI techniques. Okay. And so we just met and kind of brainstormed. And the thing he gravitated towards the most was lyrics. And... Uh, so Hugo La Rochelle, who was my manager at the time, was uh, very generous because I had just joined Brain. He's like, do you want to take this project? Because I like music. I said, sure, it sounds fun. I had never trained a language model. Um, I was still trying to figure out all this deep network stuff because I didn't, hadn't looked at that. Uh, but yeah, Hugo uh, gave me that opportunity and I learned a ton in that project. And so still, it's still an ongoing project. So relative to the first model that I trained with David, which we actually... Uh, made a video out of that like he rewrote one of his songs with the this first prototype and it worked okay but the model we have now is so much better and i understand all of this language modeling so much better than when i did before and that's just that experience kind of showed me to not be afraid of, of sort of stepping out of because i'm very familiar in reinforcement learning which is yeah. my background um to step out of that comfort zone and go into other areas that I'm not as familiar with because they're all interesting problems and sort of really trying to dig into the the, the details. And, and the, for me, the, the way I learned the most is actually trying to implement some of these models and architectures and play around with them because you read about them in papers and you kind of get it. Yeah. That's yeah. fine. But until you're actually trying to get it to work for yourself, it's, it's, that's a whole different experience. And I've learned so much just from doing this, like jumping from uh, one, one problem to, to the next in a, in a separate kind of field and, and learning about those architectures, but while still maintaining my research and reinforcement yeah. learning. Well, it sounds like you've landed in an incredible place to do that, not just kind of the resources of Google and the people that you're surrounded with and have an opportunity to interact with, but your role seems to be defined as like advancing research, you know, via implementation. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm, I'm a software uh, developer, like that's my official title. Mm -hmm. um, there's also research scientists at Google. Mm -hmm. And um, until recently, there were still, like most people that are in research want to be research scientists yeah. because that's like, then you're officially doing science. Right, right. Um, so my, like if I had graduated, say four years after when I graduated, yeah likely I would have been applying for a research scientist role. Uh, uh, back when I applied at Google, that wasn't really... Uh, wasn't maybe Sammy Benjo was a research scientist, but mm -hmm. probably that, that was about <laughs> it. Um, and so I entered Google as a software engineer and sort of advanced my career in that in that track. And when I joined Google, it was as a software uh, engineer or develop, we call it developer in Quebec because engineer, you get an iron ring and I don't have that iron okay. ring. Um, uh, Initially, I was a little skeptical because the official description is you're there more supporting research scientists. Mm -hmm. And so I was worried that I wouldn't have the flexibility to sort of pursue my own research interests, but it's been not at all like that. So mm -hmm. I lead my own research projects and I still support a lot of people with the um, engineering aspects of it because I'm, I've been working on this a lot. So I'm more familiar with like Google infrastructure and, and just coding in general. Yeah. Um, and it's been, I mean, a lot of the, the major advances that we see in machine learning and AI nowadays is a lot of it is engineering. Yeah. 
Um, So there is, of course, there's still math and there's still a lot of theory behind it, but a lot of it is engineering. Um, And I don't think it, I think more and more it is, but um, but a few years ago, I don't feel it got the credit it it really deserved. Mm -hmm. And so living in this sort of intersection of of pure engineering and pure research is for me super exciting because I kind of get to play around in both worlds and and learn from both worlds. Mm -hmm. I've got a, a long list of things that I want to talk to you about, but you mentioned uh, something that's got me really curious, the, you know, what it means to evolve a language model. You started this pro- project with David uh, and came out with this, you know, early crappy language model and have evolved it over some number of years It's been now? like a, Months? yeah, no, it's been like a year and a half. It's been, or actually it's been almost like two years, I think, since we yeah. started it, but it, two years calendar uh, calendar wise but it's not it's not one of my main projects so yeah exactly so it's when i get a chance that i that i work on that um yeah so as i said when i started this project i had never trained a language model i like i knew what lstms were because i'd studied it in school but so the first thing i did was i actually um andre karpati has the um yeah this famous uh blog post uh the uh surprising reliability of of recurrent neural networks something like that um, anyway, so I read that blog post and I got his code and sort of played around with it. And that was the ver- the V0 model, okay. um, just over characters. And then uh, I started tweaking that a bit and, and finding new data sets for lyrics. And um, that initial model that was basically a variant of um, Andre Karpati's model was the initial model that I had. And okay. so that was, okay, like just a milestone, like, okay, I was able to train this and actually get it to do what I wanted it to do. Yeah. But it obviously was um, it has all the shortcomings that these types of models do. At this round, I mean, the, the attention is all you need. Paper had come out not not uh, not too much before then, mm-hmm. and so then I started looking into these attention uh, models, and and so it seemed like the right thing to do. So I switched over to to the transformer model, mm-hmm. and started playing around with that. And um, so the V two model was using an attention model. And so I had various versions of V2. Part of the difficulty that I had with the language, uh, with training these language models on Lyrics dataset is that the Lyrics dataset is, is not the best. In what sense? So the, the tricky thing about these language models is that, and, and for Lyrics in particular, is that you're trying to get this model to learn English, kind of. So how, how to structure English phrases together, but in a quote-unquote poetic way. Right. Um, and to not be boring. Right, because you're trying to use it for creative purposes, and so yeah. you don't want it to be boring. So we trained this model, and if you look at like perplexity scores and things like that, it was doing pretty well on this lyrics data set. But then when you actually look at the output, it was extremely boring. Um, so because in, in pop songs, you have lines that repeat uh, often. I mean, that's just how songs are written. So the model would tend to just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. Um, it also had certain phrases that it would keep on coming back to, like they just had very high likelihood. So... Uh, one of you talks about this, I say like it's hand wavy, but the, the average pop line over the last six decades is, you know that I'm the one. <laughs> and uh, so that one came up a lot. And you can also add, sometimes you get, you know that I'm the one, comma, baby. <laughs> so that's the, the average pop line. And it was boring. And so it, the interesting thing about working with, with David is that I'd build like variants of these models and I'd show him. And one of the things he remarked on is that uh, it was very non-specific in the sense that um, the nouns that it was using, it wouldn't use proper nouns. So it would use like me, you, he, she, they. Um, so it's very am- kind of ambiguous if you think of 
uh, like the Beatles. I mean, there's Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, Jude, you know, there's all these, I mean, they're fictional characters, but they're Very characters. Yeah. And so then yeah. you can sort of, they ground the, the song in something kind of real. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're ch just talking about him, like, hey, you don't let me down. Like that's not, <laughs> even though Pink Floyd has a hey, you song. But <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so anyway, then from that feedback, uh, I started looking at other data sets. So for instance, the fiction books data set. Um, these are available online. So we trained it with that and we got much more diverse vocabulary, much more diverse themes than we would get with, with lyrics. But uh, the structure of the what was coming out no longer looked like a song line, it, mm -hmm. like a song lyric. It looked more just like a sentence that you'd sort of cut in half. and It just looked like a sentence with new line characters wow. thrown in, in random places. Um, so then I, I thought, um, why not, rather than trying to tackle this problem with a single language model uh, where I'm trying to get all these constraints of, of like making being coherent uh, from the English perspective being kind of creative and also following the structure of, of lyrics uh, why try to do this all with one model like there for me there's no Before you go to, to multiple models with the you know the language models you were working at working with at the time is there a way, are you trying to express those constraints explicitly or just based on the data that you're feeding into? The it was, I was more playing with the data. So yeah. with, the, with the training data that I was using to try to enforce these, these constraints. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the lyrics, I mean, the idea was, well, if we want to write lyrics, then we should train on a lyrics data set to try to replicate that distribution. Right. But there's, as I'm saying, it, a lot of the interesting lyrics are in the long tail of the distribution. And the long tail is, is terrible for a model because it's going to have low likelihood by definition. Um, but that's actually what we're interested in. As, like, so it has to be coherent, but unlikely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, so that's part of the reason why I, um, I was considering just going to, why, why, why try to do it with one, a single model? Mm -hmm. um, as my ultimate my ultimate goal was to have something that artists could actually use and uh, David could, could use for, for writing a whole new song um, from scratch. And so for him, it doesn't, like he won't care and most artists won't care whether it's a single model or, or multiple models, um, as long as it is interesting and makes sense. And, and just to understand the, the, the goal, is it start with some prompt and the thing spits out an entire song or kind of is the artist or is the model one in which the artist is kind of incrementally prompting the model and kind of refining the the output yeah it's more the latter so the way we're starting to build out a, a website that i'm hoping to release um early next year so it's okay. it's almost ready but uh it's just as i said it's one of one project that i work on when i have time and yeah. with nerves and all that it's been kind of tight uh but the idea is yeah you have Kind of like an almost like a notepad where you where you're writing your song, and this is coming a lot from feedback from David with how, about how he writes songs, uh, and so you have you write your uh, part of your line, or, or you can even start without a prompt and then just ask the the model for suggestions, and so then the model will give you suggestions for the next line. Uh, you can specify rhyming schemes, so um, whether like if you want ABBA or if you just want it to rhyme with your current line, mm -hmm. and then the model will give you some suggestions, and then you can like drag those suggestions over to your your worksheet or um, inspire yourself from those the suggestions that the model gave, and and then continue working with with your song this way. So it's more uh, 
what I what I'm not as interested in is having something where you press a button and it produces yeah. your next top forty hit. That, yeah. It's really like a tool. The way I view it is as a tool. So um, one analogy I like to use is if you think of recording music in the '60s or '70s. If you wanted to record a good album, you had to go to a professional recording studio and hire a pro professional recording engineer because otherwise it wouldn't sound very good. Um, now we have things like Pro Tools and, and Ableton that you can do it in your basement. And like a lot of people have become very famous from recording albums completely by themselves in their basement. So it's not like we got rid of uh, recording engineers or recording studios. They're, they're still around and, and, uh, there's, and, and doing the same thing. Um, and you still require them for, for many for many purposes, but these tools like Pro Tools and Ableton kind of democratize the, the recording industry. And so a lot of people can start playing around with recording and, and maybe pursue music as a career um, by leveraging what they can do on their own. And so I view these tools as sort of in the same vein, where the idea is not to um, sort of replace musicians or, or songwriters, but to um, enhance them. So uh, basically give them something that they can play with. Um, the other thing that I find interesting that, that could be quite useful for this is if your first language is in English, um, and, but you want to write a song in English because you're living in an English-living country, this tool might be helpful for because it does provide um, well-structured well sentences. It might help you write your song because you can provide the context and sort of the themes. And um, the model would help you write in a way that that's more natural uh, sounding English than, than, than what you would be able to come up with on your own. Okay. And you mentioned that you're the one of the things the artist is able to do is put in kind of the rhyming scheme that mm -hmm. you're interested in. Is this kind of a filter after the model is generating uh, possibilities or is it some kind of constraint that's introduced in the model itself? It's not even no constraint or, or filter. Um, the way it's happening is by nature of how we're training the model. So I have, as I mentioned, we moved to this this uh, system where we have two models. Okay. So one is what I call the structure model. So they're both transformer models, but the first one is trained on the lyrics data set. But um, rather than using the English words, um, I convert them to other uh, parts of speech. So like noun, adverb, that type of thing. And it also includes like the number of syllables in the line and then the final phoneme syllable. So like basically this is for, rhy for rhyming. Mm -hmm. And so this model, if you give it the structure of your current line, it will, the output of it, um, what it generates will be the structure of the next line. Mm. And so then you can feed that next line structure with the actual English words of your first line into the second model. Um, and this is, this is another transformer model, which I call the vocabulary transformer. And so this one is trained on, on books, on the books data set, because we want the diverse vocabulary from that. Mm -hmm. And so what this model is trained to do is to fill in these blanks. So these parts of speech. Conditioned that on the... Conditioned on the... On the so, uh, so yeah, so the first half gives it the, the context, right? Because yeah. it's using English words. The second half gives it the structure. So the number of syllables, what parts of speech, mm -hmm. and the last phoneme. So we trained it with the books data set by essentially, um, because we know the, the ground truth, we can um, specify when you have this context and, and this structure, this is the last phoneme. And so the, the, the target that we're yeah. training to, to emulate um, matches that. So we, it, it rhymes really well. Um, the one thing that we're working on right now is that the easiest way to rhyme is to just use the same word. <laughs> <laughs> right, so red always rhymes with red. Right, right, right. Um, so that's something that uh, that we're exploring a few different approaches on how to overcome that. Mm -hmm. So that um, we've tried a few things, playing like the, the first things we tried, just again playing with the data to see if we could discourage it from from rhyming with the same word. So far, none of those things have worked very well. So 
like an easy thing you can do is, is basically when you have the um, the weights for the, the possible uh, tokens that the, that the model can emit, just set the weight to zero for the word that you don't want to rhyme. And then the model is forced to pick uh, a different word when, when decoding. Um, so we're trying a few other things that uh, are a bit more exciting for us. Um, but yeah, that's essentially how we get the rhyming for the model. Is this project, is this, has this been published? I know you're working on the website, but like... Yeah, we had a paper in the workshop, uh, the creativity workshop, um, two years ago. Okay. Uh, or last, no, it was last year, sorry, in the creativity workshop at NURPS in Montreal mm -hmm. last year. Um, but it's a two-page paper. I think it's on archive, but it's very, like, <laughs> summarized. It's too... Remember, somebody asked me that, that wanted to collaborate on the project. I sent them the link, and he's like, this looks like a proposal. It's not a paper. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that, that paper is still very pre preliminary. We have a, a more extended version, but we are thinking of submitting it uh, somewhere. We're just trying to refine the model. So it, the paper itself is not published, mm -hmm. um, but we're working on, on basically getting more human feedback. Because we, we have some quantitative measures, but because it's the purpose is creative, it's kind of hard to measure quantitatively. So we want to get more humans to evaluate and, and measure it compared to other models or even true lyrics. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're working on that, and also we're working on making the, the code open source so you can take it and train with whatever yeah. um, data set you want. So train it with Wikipedia or something, and yeah. then you get... What's the training time or kind of resource for the training? Well, so we train, uh, we, we've been training on TPUs, and yeah. that's really fast. Yeah. <laughs> so the longest... Uh, the, the distributed, like lots of TPUs? No, just... just uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. And it's been, it's been it's pretty fast. Um, on the order of like we were training less than in less than an hour. Oh wow! So okay. yeah, it's quite fast. The the longest part is is the pre-processing uh, of the of the data set. If your data set is very large, because we do this decomposition into parts of speech mm -hmm. and that type of thing, that's typically what t what takes the longest. But okay. uh, once you do it, you do it once, and then you can reuse it for whenever. Interesting. I I, I can I ask the question earlier about applying external constraints into the modeling process. Is there does that work with transformer models? Are there folks that are doing that kind of thing, like almost like a model-based kind of? There, are, yeah, there is some work with that. Um, I've seen so uh, there's there's some people in the Toronto office from Brain that have been doing some. There's one uh, paper called the insertion transformer. So rather than decoding left to right as you typically do with with language models, like I don't know all the details, but essentially the the way it works is now you can emit tokens that say where to insert. So not decoding from left and right, but actually inserting into different parts. So this allows it to um, potentially start from like a higher level of the structure of the phrase that it's going to generate, and then sort of start filling in more of the details um, once the structure is is there. And so th it's actually something I've, I've been meaning to look at because th this might be kind of useful for lyrics where you're trying to, to satisfy some structure. Um, so maybe we can generate a full verse rather than line by line. Um, if we have, if we start doing in this kind of incremental, incremental way, there's also like from the Magenta team, the the, the music transformer that uh, that they've been doing, and that I don't know if I don't think they explicitly um, encode constraints, but for instance, the way they they encode um, time is is a bit different than than what we use for for language modeling, um, and so that just the result of that is is for music at least is is a more coherent and more pleasing. Uh, we have started looking a little bit in reinforcement learning and seeing how we could potentially use that. I was just going to ask, is there an overlap or interplay with R? There is. So we are looking into it a little bit. Um, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. It's tricky to get right. And uh, yeah, my, my thinking is always, 
I don't want to overcomplexify it if I don't have to. So that's why I always start with the simplest idea. And if that isn't working, then okay, we start considering a bit more sophisticated things for many reasons. I mean, when something breaks, it's easier to fix if it's, yeah. if it's simpler than if it's, yeah. if you have a lot, a lot of moving parts. Um, and I also feel like with the reinforcement learning aspect of it, um, the little I've been playing with it with, for this particular project, it's a little harder to make it stable in the sense that you can kind of reproduce the same type of quality that from run to run. So, so it might be interesting to an instructor to kind of explore like what's your first step? How do you think about, okay, you've got this one tool that you know well, mm -hmm. RL, you've got this use case area that you want to apply it to. Like how do you start to even formulate the problem? Um, it's, I don't, this is the, the way I, I work. It's more trying to solve very specific problems that I have with. Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm saying where I like to start with just a simple yeah. thing um, because it probably won't work the way you want it. And, and there will be very concrete aspects that are problems that you have with it at the, at the moment. And so then you, I, I like to focus on those particular problems and uh, see what techniques I can use. So um, for, this, for, for this rhyming constraint, uh, there is some prior work that that has done similar type things, not with transformers, but with with um, RNN. So um, Natasha Jacques, when when she did a, a an internship with the Magenta team, she had a paper where she was using RL to for like an RNN that produces melodies. Mm -hmm. um, she was trying to use RL to make it encourage it to to respect the rules of counterpoint. So counterpoint is this set of rules from music theory that um, basically specifies how to write music for polyphonic voices. So that it sounds better, and so she was trying to use RL for this because the 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 RNN for for melody generation on its own wasn't respecting this necessarily at all, and sometimes it was producing like just repeating the same note over and over, mm -hmm. which is a violation of one of the rules of counterpoint. So that uh, she got some interesting results, but I think part of the the limitation was also just the RNN encoding it into the training process of the transformer. So what, how you train these attention models. I think that might be a little challenging and it would likely slow down our training because uh, the technical aspects of it, of getting these RL things working on, for instance, TPUs um, is not trivial mm -hmm. um, just because TPUs work well on, on very large batches, but not as well with, with smaller batches and with right. RL when you're dealing with this kind of, kind of online. Time. Yeah. Online. So then it, it becomes tricky to, to make it work well in a way that you, because you still want to be able to train these things quickly. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like it's much less of a, hey, I've got, you know, chocolate peanut butter. Let's get them together and see what happens. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Got yeah. this specific thing. Uh, you know what? You know, start at the simplest possible way to solve it. Yeah. And kind of work your way. Yeah. Up in complexity. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I don't I don't want to throw RL at just because I know it well. I don't necessarily want to use it for everything because sometimes you don't need RL. Like sometimes mm -hmm. just. I don't know, an SVM would work just fine. <laughs> and then uh, you should just use that in, in, in my viewpoint. And now you've got a couple of papers, a poster and a paper maybe here at Neurips though that are using RL. Yes. Yeah. So we had a poster this morning uh, from our team. Um, so Mark Belmara was the first author and he was the one manning the poster and, and he, I saw him afterwards. He, his voice was <laughs> very tired. <laughs> Uh, so that one is called Geometric Perspective on Optimal Representations in, in Reinforcement Learning. Mm -hmm. And so we've been thinking a lot uh, on our team in Montreal about representations for reinforcement learning. And uh, myself in particular, I'm, I'm quite interested in this topic and I'm doing a lot of work right now in, in this space. 
Um, but this this uh, paper is sort of a partner paper to this other work that came out in ICML. Um, I wasn't on, on this other paper, but um, I was along for the voyage, um, the val value function polytope. So this is a paper that basically shows that the, the value functions that you get in Markov decision processes form this, this polytope in, in this high-dimensional space. And so it has this, these interesting characteristics. So for instance, the, the vertices of this polytope correspond to deterministic policies. And so the path, you can look at the path that certain different algorithms will take along this polytope as they try to get to the optimal policy. And there's some really interesting visualizations of when you compare like value-based methods versus policy gradient methods. And some of them actually leave the polytope in their trajectory. So they're essentially, their policies are in a space where they're not valid policies in the sense that um, they're not consistent with, with, the, with the system, but they eventually end up coming back and, and reaching some near optimal policy. So the work we have here is basically leveraging this polytope and trying to see how we can um, use it for, for optimal representations. And what I mean by optimal representations is that it's not just useful for the optimal policy, but you can actually use this representation theoretically for, for many different policies. So um, there's a whole uh, theory behind it, but essentially you're trying to find a representation that will minimize um, the error that you get when you use that representation to express uh, a, a particular value function for a policy that doesn't need to be optimal. So it ends up being akin to having um, auxiliary tasks in a sense where uh, we've, there's a lot of work in, in the reinforcement learning field where ex adding auxiliary tasks to your, to your learning process is, is helpful in that it serves almost like a regularizer for your, for your representations. The multitask. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so these, these different um, policies that you're optimizing for, so you're not just trying to get to this uh, optimal policy, but sort of build your representation in a way that you can express, your, express these other policies quite well, they end up serving sort of as auxiliary tasks and um, they can help make the representation a bit more in interpretable, but also more expressive. So there's some visualizations in, in grid worlds where you can see if you do the regular learning process, if you look at the representations, you, you get certain dimensions of the representation are almost useless in the sense that they're not very expressive in terms of the state space of what they can represent in the state space. But using these, um, uh, these we call them adversarial value functions. Um, so, so these are the value functions for the other policies. As, as these auxiliary tasks, you get representations that are much more expressive in that they cover the state space uh, a lot more. Um, and so they're able to have a richer exp expressive power for representing multiple um, value functions. You mentioned expressiveness. Are you are you trying to have minimal representations in a sense that they're reduced not, dimensionality? No, no, not necessarily with this. But it, so part of what we're trying to achieve is is that whatever representation you end up learning isn't own, overfit to the optimal policy. So let's say you tweak your your reward function a little bit, and the policy you have is no longer um, optimal under this new reward scheme. Um, but let's say for whatever reason you maintain your, your representation fixed because you just want to do linear approximation. Um, if you don't have a good representation, then you're not going to be able to express the new, the new policy um, properly. And so this is what these representations are, are trying to do. Not necessarily reduce dimensionality, but just increased expressive power so that they're able to pretty well express the, your current optimal value function. But if you were to want to express a, a, the value function under a different policy, 
or in a, under a different reward function, perhaps, that it would still have the uh, pretty good expressive power to be able to do that with low approximation error. Now, the concept of generalizability is applicable to both the policy itself and the representation. Mm -hmm. And so is there a relationship between the two, whereas more generalizable uh, or better generalized policies have better generalized representations or not necessarily unless you apply this approach that you've described? So by generalizable policies, do you mean like policies that uh, are... Like if if you've learned a, a suite of policies, or? Uh, I'm, I guess I'm trying to. I don't know if if policy is the right place to apply. This is the question I'm asking. Like if I'm thinking of uh, thinking of it from the perspective of I've trained an agent that uh, can maximize some uh, reward in some environment. You know, in one sense, generalization is I want to be able to put it in a slightly different environment and have it be able to perform well. Right. Right. And so that being the case, where where does generalization live in that world? Is it in the policy that it, you know, or is well, it you, the... you probably end up learning a new policy. Yeah. Um, but it, this ties very closely to representation, because if your representation, it's almost like you're doing fine tuning at that point. So you've trained your agent under a particular reward function. And now you have your trained agent and now you say, okay, well, now I want this new task or this new reward function, mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to retrain from scratch. I want to start from where I started. So it's kind of like fine tuning. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so there, if, if your representation is highly overfit to the, the first policy that you ended up learning, um, it might be very difficult to, to sort of switch over to, to this new policy. If you're doing something even more drastic where you're saying, I, I already trained this agent, so I'm going to fix the representation and no longer backprop um, through through the rest of the network and I'm only going to be learning, learning the, the last linear layer. If your representation is poor, you're not going to be able to learn the new task. And so there uh, is where generalization comes comes into play. If you have a representation that, that is expressive, mm -hmm. then when you switch the reward function or try to learn, learn a new policy, um, if your representation is expressive, you, you should be able to do that reasonably well, at least better than than um, with a lot of the existing methods where there is evidence that they do tend to overfit to the current policy. Okay. And so what was the inspiration for this paper, you know, coming from the original Polytope paper? Was it driven by a particular use case or... Uh... So uh, Mark, uh, he's uh, introduced the distributional uh, approach to reinforcement learning. So rather than backing up um, values, you're backing, backing up distributions when you're, when you're doing learning. And so this seems to give um, a lot of advantages for, for learning uh, in terms of performance. And there's a lot of follow-up work. I've seen a bunch of papers. Today, particularly, there were a lot of distributional papers. Um, but it's still not well understood how why they're, they're giving that advantage. So we had a paper, uh, AAAI this year um, with Claire Lyle, uh, where we were investigating where this difference come from, comes from. So the traditional way of, of doing the RL backup is we call it expectational because you're taking expectations and then you get a single number versus the distributional approach where you're backing up uh, distributions. And so Claire did a lot of work and, and she essentially proved that the there is no difference under certain mild conditions. There is no difference between expectational distribution, neither in distributional, neither in the tabular setting, nor the linear function approximator setting. So they're essentially identical. Distributional doesn't give you an advantage then. 
it's really when you go into deep networks that the the advantage of distributional comes in and it's not always guaranteed to give you an advantage so it's just going to be different and so sometimes it might actually hurt you um and um, there's a like a counter example in the paper where it shows that uh distributional can actually provide worse performance than than expectational so we in our team we're also very interested in in trying to understand distributional methods more and so Mark was looking into this quite a bit, and uh, he came up with this idea of basically looking at distributional at, at the distributional perspective almost like, as auxiliary tasks. And through that, um, he, he had a, I remember, a good lunch meeting with Dale Schurmans, and I think that's where they came up with this idea of the adversarial value functions. Um, but it came from this initial idea of let's try to understand distributional methods a bit okay. more. And you've got another uh, paper that is being presented in the financial yeah. applications mm-hmm. workshop. Uh, yeah, so that's about? so this is a collaboration with the Bank of Canada. I mean, they they've done most of the work. I'm more uh, on an advisory, <laughs> well, on an advisory role. So um, they a lot of them, their team, they're economists. Yeah. So they're not as familiar with reinforcement learning. So that's where I come in, and so I just. Basically, they show me what they're thinking, and, and we, we had a, a lot of brainstorms at, at the beginning to try to frame the, the, the problem properly so that it, it sort of satisfies their desiderata for, for their economic theory, but also that it, it makes sense from a reinforcement learning perspective. Mm-hmm. And so what they're looking at, they're part of the Bank of Canada, which is part of the government, and uh, one of the tasks, the main tasks of, of the Bank of Canada is to make sure that the economy is, is stable. And so one of the things they, they look at is, is the interbank payments that happen on a daily basis between different banks in Canada. So um, Bank A owes Bank B some money, and so it may send it throughout the day. And so if Bank B has, has that extra liquidity, then Bank B can pay other banks. And so how they, how they manage these payments affects how much how many of the payments they can make and how many payments they receive and so not making payments in time can uh, give them interest uh, penalties and, and these types of things and so the bank of canada plays a role as an intermediary to try to regulate these things so that you don't have um problems where where there's a bank that's not making any of the payments and all of the other banks are stuck and not making able to make any other payments and so you're stuck in the stalemate so it's a very complex problem it's a very dynamic problem and they're interested in, in in looking at this, obviously, from the economics theory perspective, but also they're interested in seeing if you can simulate some of these uh, dynamics via reinforcement learning. So we've been looking at um, framing it as a multi-agent reinforcement learning problem, where each of the agents are the different banks in question, and uh, seeing trying to train them to, to learn optimal policies. Uh, and they're co-learning, so all of the agents are sort of learning independently. And you get some interesting dynamics as, as this is happening. So the workshop, the paper that we have here is still very preliminary work um, where we're essentially trying to demonstrate that this is even feasible. Um, so as I said, I like to take things from the simple uh, angle and then grow from there. So we're, we're decomposing the, the big problem of solving this interbank payment system um, with decomposing it into smaller sub-problems that we can analytically find the solution for. Um, that's what the economists know how to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can sort of validate that uh, reinforcement learning is able to, to simulate that uh, faithfully. And so far, we've, we've had uh, pretty good success with that. And so now we're starting to combine some of these sub-problems and go into the more challenging tasks. What are some examples of the kind of granularity of the sub-problems? So the, the two sub-problems we're considering in this paper, the, the, the basically the simplest that you can consider. One is... 
Um, each bank at the uh, start of the day can choose how much liquidity it's going to bring in to start making payments. Mm -hmm. So it's a prediction problem because you have to, this one is almost like a bandit problem because you, you choose initial liquidity. It's like basically pulling one of the, the bandit arms. And then based on that initial liquidity, that um, determines how much you'll be able to pay. So obviously, if there were no cost to that, you would just pull all of your liquidity and then you'd have as much money as you need to, to make all the payments. But there's a cost to, to pulling um, initial liquidity because this is coming from the Bank of Canada. So it's almost like you're borrowing money from the Bank of Canada to be able to make payments. And then at the end of the day, you return it um, to the bank. So this is one of the, the sub-problems. This one's more like a bandit problem. So they've, they've run some simulations with, with uh, log data, historical log data that they have. Um, and then the other problem is uh, the intraday payment. So they, the, if you think of the day divided into hours, at each hour you can make a decision of paying a particular bank that you owe money to um, or not. Um, so you may owe money to, to a bunch of different banks. If you don't pay them back, then that bank might not have enough liquidity to pay you back. Um, and so there's when you start adding, adding more agents, then this becomes more and more complex. And so this one is, is less of a bandit problem. It's more of a sequential decision-making problem. Mm -hmm. And for in, in order to decompose them, for the first bandit problem, we're essentially keeping the intraday payment fixed in the sense that the, the, the choice that you made at the beginning doesn't really affect the dynamics of what happens later. It's a fixed policy. And for the second problem, we keep we're essentially assuming, giving the agents uh, as much liquidity as they want. Okay. So the, the problem is very simple there. All they have to do is make all the payments that, that they need to make. Mm -hmm. But because there's this multi-agent interaction, um, they don't necessarily always will find that optimal policy. When you first started describing the problem, one of the thoughts that came to mind was kind of a graph of the individual banks. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've heard much conversation about kind of the intersection of graph and reinforcement learning. Is there work happening there? Um, there's a little bit. There's a little bit, especially in the deterministics. I, th I believe I saw a paper come out recently where they're decompose. They're basically using graph um, algorithms for solving uh, um, certain reinforcement learning tasks. So you can do um, value function approximation by by using different types of, of graph learning algorithms. Um, in this particular case, I mean, they are basically representing a graph, the, the, the connections between these... these um, kind of the actual transactions, though, not necessarily yeah, a structural and, thing between the banks. Right, and, and so most of the work I've seen with at the intersection of, of graph, whether it be with neural networks or not, and reinforcement learning is in the single agent setting, yeah. where the, the graph is more representing the environment. Right. Um, whereas in this case, the graph is, is representing the connection between the agents. Right. So you have multiple agents that they're not sharing parameters. So they're kind of independent agents. Right. And the multi-agent setting, um, it's not something I have done a lot of work on. So it, it's also been kind of interesting for me to learn more about the literature. Mm -hmm. It's a really challenging problem. Um, you have a lot of game theoretic aspects uh, to it. Um, and it's not a clear... For, for many problems, there's no clear solution. You have like Nash equilibria, but it's it's that's as good as you can get mm -hmm. for, for many problems. And uh, so I haven't in that space. I haven't seen much with with graphs. Okay, um, with graph theory. Cool. Well, uh, Pablo, thanks for taking the time to no, chat with us and share thanks a bit so about what you're up to. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. 
To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.